electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Front and center this hour, the big call from one of America's most successful investors. What he told me that could directly impact your money in the markets. I'll tell you that. We'll debate it with our investment committee this hour. And joining me today, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, John Najarian, and Tiffany McGee, the CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors. Let's go to the wall. So much focus, obviously, on tech these days. NASDAQ and NASDAQ 100 pacing for their third straight negative weeks. NASDAQ has recently gone positive, though, by, well, just shy of 19 points. Dow's the winner again, up 137. There's the Russell in the red. We're watching yields, too. Ten-year, the yield there is at 147. All this brings me now to that stunner from Ariel's co-CEO and CIO, John Rogers. He told me during a CNBC Pro Talk late on Wednesday that investors should avoid the S&P 500. We started to feel like, the NASDAQ and these tech stocks were going to have their comeuppance. They're going to have a difficult time. So I'd stay away from the S&P 500 because it is so, you know, chock-a-block with the FANG stocks and these, you know, huge, huge tech companies and, and fast-growing tech companies. And there, but so, you know, that's an area which will cause the entire market to go down because there's such a high percentage of the S&P 500. All right, Farmer Jim, you're my value guy, right? Is he right? Is John Rogers right? He's, he's partially right. I'll give him that. Here's, the, here's where the mistake is. You cannot paint all of the NASDAQ with the same brush stroke. There's two distinct parts. There's growth at a reasonable price, which includes the fangs. Okay, so if I look at Apple, that's where I'm going to go, right? It's down 16% from the high that it hit back in January. I'm telling you right now, that's more than enough of a drawdown. That's more than enough of correction. And I added to Apple today. I added to Qualcomm. On the other hand, the other sector where he is absolutely right, okay, is the high-flying software stocks and the renewable energy stocks. If Apple trades at 25 times earnings, that's fine, okay? But if something like Snowflake or Palantir or Tesla trades at 25 times sales, you do not have a buyer in me. You simply do not. You have a seller. And I think John's on right, right on that, but I think he's wrong on Apple. Amazon's off 16%. Uh, you know, Facebook's off 16%. That's too much. That's enough. You can buy those right now. Okay, so now we're going to have a debate not only about the fangs, but the snowflakes of the world, which John Najarian bought Snowflake today at like $240 a share. <laughs> so Snowflake, yep. you know, maybe no company of late has had as much pressure on it than Snowflake because of its price to sales ratio, its valuation. You got to deliver or look out below and what happens? Snowflake delivers. That stock's up 10%. And John Nigerian still bought it. Why, John? Well, I bought it, Scott, because people were shorting this one ahead of the lockup, which you've talked about. And that lockup, of course, people that are insiders, 
um, have a six-month and then frequently another six-month period where they can sell the remainder of their shares uh, doesn't mean that they have to do it right at that point. And uh, a lot of us look at those lockup periods and say, boy, you could see some pressure. You did see some pressure um, into this lockup period. And that's why the stock traded down to 236 today, Scott. So it has made a nice V-shaped bottom off of that. Uh, I decided to buy it as it was coming up off of there. I'm now selling aggressively calls into it. But if I could, Scott, I'm, I'm right with Jim Labenthal. As you know, I had lightened up on all of my tech stock holdings and instead had simulated positions in the options. Just like Jim, without changing my overall uh, view of tech, I am adding back in stock now and trading out of those option positions. So I agree with Jim 100%. Facebook, I did that. Apple, I did that. Amazon, I've done that. Um, I think that John Rogers is wrong about that. I think he's a very smart man. He's got a great career. Um, but I'm doing the opposite. I'm buying into those names that I had sold out of in the first weeks of this year and buying back into them on the stock side, the equity side now, so that I can write covered calls against it as we go into the second quarter. Okay. So the premise, Tiff, and, and by the way, John Rogers is on your advisory board of, of your new firm. So let's just get that, get that out there right then and there. So when he made that statement to me yesterday, um, and by the way, that's the kind of stuff you get on CNBC Pro. I mean, if you want to know why to go there, That's because right. you get to talk and investors get to talk and ask questions directly, well, through somebody like me or whoever else is hosting the interview, to somebody like John Rogers, hello, and he makes a statement like that. And I, I sort of did a double take, Tiffany, when, when he did that, uh, when he basically says avoid the S&P 500, and then he's talking about some of the high-flying growth tech names, and I said, uh-oh, Tiffany is not going to like it. I think I la actually laughed and did say that. She's not going to like to hear that. His premise is the following, quote, is does remind me of what happened when the Internet bubble burst. You know, not only did the S&P 500 crater and those digital companies crater, the Russell 2000 got crushed also, but the value indices went up. And I think that's what's going to happen again. We're going to have a repeat of that kind of dramatic shift. And that, I think, is going to be very powerful. And we've been predicting, frankly, for quite a while. So is he right? How, how do you weigh in on that question? So first of all, that was a great interview. And uh, yes, I, when he made that statement, I, I it was actually I, I took notes. Right. So so first of all, I'm not as cool as Sean. Right. And so he manages a focused strategy of uh, small and mid value stocks. I think it's really important to to um, to make that distinction. So for me, you know, my mandate from clients is that I manage their entire portfolio. It's a multi asset strategy. Right. So I have to have exposure to the broad to, to the broad market. And typically we do this through, you know, custom um, passive strategies through through um, index funds and really to save on fees. But I think investors should be thinking about three things, right, uh, in terms of how to navigate, navigate markets right now. Number one, perspective, right? So you have to understand that we were in an event-driven recession. And what the event taketh away, right, in this case, it was growth, uh, you know, economic growth, it will also giveth back, right? And we're seeing that right now. But this time, we have an expiration date on this event, right? And the second thing is plan. Is your plan to be a trader or is it to be a long-term investor? Right. And well, so he's I'm not a, a trader. He, My he, clients are he's a long term investor. Right. He's a long term investor. No. To your, and to your point, to your point, though, you're, you're right. You're right. 
right? It was an event-driven re recession. You can come out of that. What, what also comes with that as part of his point? Higher rates. Reflation trade. So the, listen, the market is right, going to react accordingly to that. It will, but... But let me just finish my point, right? So when you have a plan, right? And in this case, I'm a long-term investor. And you know, understanding what the, what's going on in the markets right now is a moment and it will pass. And really understanding the third thing, positioning, right? And having a diversified portfolio is particularly important for a time like this, right? So it's not a question of growth versus value, S&P versus NASDAQ. For me right now, you need to have both. You need to have a diversified portfolio. That's how you weather the markets. Josh Brown, I mean, this was a call that the value renaissance, which some investors have been calling for for the last however many eternities, is finally here. And he wants investors to be positioned accordingly. Reflation trade, rates go up, multiples get compressed, and those left-for-dead value stocks finally have their day. What's your thought? Um, with all due respect to John, I think the critical part of this is what do you do about it? And I disagree with his answer. I don't think the S&P 500 is where people really get hurt and what you want to avoid. I think it's the Russell 1000 growth or the NASDAQ 100. That's really where the excesses are. Because if there is a value renaissance, the S&P 500 will do just fine. Plenty of stocks in the S&P 500 are what you would consider to be value stocks, and it's highly diversified. Even though 20-some-odd percent of it is technology, um, you've got all of the other value sectors in there. So John's a value investor. It's always a value renaissance about to happen um, for, for value investors. And you can always find value if that's your discipline, concentrated, value-oriented, contrarian portfolios. For most investors, I think they want both growth and value. Um, Labenthal mentioned earlier that there are growth stocks trading at reasonable valuations currently, and that's true. He also said some of them are in the FANG group, and that's also true. I think Alphabet's a great case in point. So uh, I think we're in the midst of a market-wide correction right now. I think it's healthy. I think it's overdue. A lot of areas of excess are um, you're, you're seeing this multiple compression happen live in real time, and I think it's also been overdue. Uh, but I don't think that that equates to run away from the S&P 500. Um, do you so think if you think about where the biggest where the biggest excesses are, you look at the Russell 1000. These are gigantic stocks that have egregious valuations that are not even in the S&P yet. Vroom, PagerDuty, uh, Zillow, Okta, Datadog, Stoneco, the Trade Desk. These are the types of stocks I think John is referring to. They're not in the S&P. Many of them won't be well, for a he, long time. He directly time, referenced the uh, Fang at stocks. At least another though. year. He, I, I'm not making it up. I mean, he he said Fang stocks, not me. I'm not assuming, insinuating, or, or, in any way, right? He said, "Fang." Do you think Fang stocks, Josh, are, are vulnerable? X, so that's the part X, I disagree X with alphabet? him on. X alphabet. Uh, I, I think some of them traded premium multiples to the market, but I think we've also made the point on the show that they have for a long time, and that it's deserved. I'd also point out that this idea that you're going to get this massive um, multiple compression as rates rise for the best companies in, in the world, that's already been proven wrong. We saw uh, a rate hike cycle that got underway in earnest in 2013, and rates rose uh, right on through 2018. They rose slowly, started with a taper. 
that it started with Fed funds rate uh, hikes. I think we had seven of them in total. We had uh, three in 17 and four in 18. And you saw the FANG stocks do incredibly well, far outpacing the overall market. So I don't think it's as simple as saying multiples will contract for FANG stocks because rates are going up. I do think there will be multiple contraction in a lot of areas in the market where you've got stocks trading at 40, 50, and even 60 times sales. I don't think that's an issue for Apple shareholders. So I think John and I agree on the big picture. I think we disagree with what you do as far as like the execution of how you react to that big picture. Tiffany, um, you know, you bought more Amazon, right? It plays right into this conversation. Tell us. Yeah, I did. And so, again, it's all about having a strategy, right? And so right now, the things that I love are on sale. And these names that I, that, that I own, that we talk about almost every week on the show, I owned pre-pandemic. And I got into them and have been adding to them for reasons not about this moment, about the moment in 2020 or a moment right now. It's because I have a long-term view on them. I have a long-term conviction. So right now, the decision for me to buy more Amazon was because it's on sale, right? When was the last time Amazon was, was you know, on a little bit of a sale? So uh, it's all about buying opportunities, entry and exit points. Okay. I mean, Amazon's down 8.5% over the past month. So your point is, is well taken, assuming that this is the best discount that you're going to get. I mean, uh, do we not think... All I know is about today, though. Yeah, but do we not (laughs) think... All I know is about today. Do we not (laughs) think, John Najarian, that if, you know, as we're we're looking at the 10-year just a second ago, getting another lift, I mean, we're back towards 150. If the 10-year continues to rise, Mm -hmm. do we not think that the NASDAQ is going to have a continued issue? I think throughout the year, the 10-year will continue to rise, Scott. But um, as I've said, I think that the the 10-year will hit a peak and then come back off of that. It did last week when it hit 161, pulled back into the 140. That was, you know, pretty big pullback. Um, And now we're right back, you know, up against 150. If we bounce around like that, that's fine. And if by the end of the year we're at 170, 175, that's also fine. If we just keep on this pace uh, that we saw in February, that's where I get worried. And to your point, that's where, yeah, I think you do run and hide if indeed we do that very quickly, because there will be a rejiggering of positions. It won't be investors panicking, Scott. What it'll be is uh, hedge funds and people with algorithms that uh, have measured past performances of big interest rates jumps whether that interest rate is coming off of a very low number like we were this year or whether it was, you know, in 2018 or uh, 2008. Any of these times when you've seen interest rates move, they've basically priced that into an algorithm and said, OK, this is how much of a correction I think we'd see in the very short term if we get that. So I'm not saying that individuals will panic. I think traders will get ahead of it much like we talked about in Snowflake. In some cases, they'll be ahead of it and they'll get run over. In other cases, they'll be ahead of it and they'll be glad that they were. And that's what I worry about is that a continuation of an upward trend in the yields will be bad for the market. Well, you know, Jim Labenthal, it's it's a sentiment game too, right? Why do you think Mm -hmm. that Boeing 
uh, which was leading the Dow earlier today, has been on a run lately. And a GE, for example, gets a very bullish call today uh, and a new street high target at Morgan Stanley, 17 bucks. They reiterate overweight. Why are those types of stocks now back in favor? Why are they catching a bid? Did their businesses all of a sudden get great overnight? Why is it happening? Um, well, uh, you know, maybe not great, but they got better. They got better. And the, there's a very specific reason those two stocks, it's the United Order of 737 Maxes from a couple of days ago. That puts a lot of wind in the sail of Boeing and into the Boeing suppliers, which includes GE, includes Raytheon. But, you know, expanding from that example, what you're seeing is what happens in an early economic expansion, one that is tremendously fueled by monetary and fiscal stimulus. You get economic activity, meaning, yeah, we still got a long way to go in terms of TSA uh, traveler checks, but it's getting better. It's clearly getting better. People are coming out of hiding uh, and it's projected to continue to get better. So people are going to travel. They're going to stay at hotels. They're going to go to Disney World. These things favor transportation stocks. They favor energy stocks, which have obviously been on one heck of a tear. But, it, you know, that's the market's way of saying, look, we know jet fuel demand has stunk for a year, but it's about to get better like right now. And that's why those those uh, cyclically sensitive stocks, which, you know, I love. I love my Marathon Petroleums and Boeings and General Motors. That's why they are performing, because we're early. We're early in this economic expansion. We have probably another two years to go. And those companies are going to make a lot of hay during that. I time think frame. that's part of the reason why Rogers of Ariel likes those kinds of stocks. I think he agrees with you that we're in the very, very early innings of a prolonged but if those stocks work, for value that's not stocks. A, that, if those stocks work, though, that, that's, not, that's not a sell signal for the S&P 500. All that is, all that is, is momentum shifting from one group within the S&P 500 to another. Now, if you want to make a bet and buy, you know, the IVE and you want to value bet, uh, or excuse me, IVV, if you want to just say like, all right, I'm going to buy an ETF that just owns the S&P 500 value names, you can make that bet. And it would have been a really bad bet um, over the last 10 years, but there have been six-month stretches where it would have worked out really well. I don't think most investors have what it takes to do that on a reliable, regular basis to like stick their finger up in the air and be like, okay, this is a value moment. Okay, we're gonna shift back, this is a growth moment. I promise you, if 90% of the people listening to this decided they were gonna make these value growth trade-offs every quarter or two quarters or even every year, I promise you they would fail. They would chop themselves up for no reason and owe a lot of taxes. So, can, can, please, can be my guest. Hang on, J Jim Laventhal first, then Tiff. Yeah, and I, I share, Josh, I share your approbation at this all-in-one, all-in-the-other type of uh, question, which always comes up. I think this is the barbell that, that we've all been talking about, Stephanie Link in particular, right? Have some value. In my case, have some GARP as well. That includes the fangs. That's Apple. That's Microsoft. Uh, that's Google. What I stay away from and where I think John is right are these hyper-growth stocks at 40 times this year's sales. 
I don't care about the idea that they're going to grow into it. When your market cap is equal to your total addressable market, you've already grown, in, grown into it and grown past it. So do the barbell with value and GARP, but you don't have to make an all or one decision. Yeah. Josh is absolutely okay, right. Okay, I get it. Growth at a reasonable price for those who are saying, what is GARP? Just making sure we're, we're all playing on the same field today. Um, all right, Tiffany, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think, and I understand what, what Jim is saying, and I agree, and I understand uh, what Josh is saying, and I agree, but I think it's also important to, to, to have voices like John's in the conversation because he is such a skilled value investor. There's been so much attention on growth, especially over the past year and all of these new retail investors that are coming in, and it's very, very exciting. But I think what John brings to the conversation is, wait a second. You know, there are opportunities um, for value here, and now is a great opportunity. So I think it's really important that we have those perspectives, not saying that it's either all or none, right? Because, again, you know, a lot of investors are, are, are investing through their 401k or, you know, um, or, or actually do have diversified portfolios, possibly working with, with, with a professional or something like that. So I, I don't know that that, that, that is, you know, that they're that they're choosing, but I think that it's equally important to have perspectives from skilled value investors like John when there's been so much attention um, every single day for at mm -hmm. least the past year on, on these uh, high growth stocks. He loves um, MSG, uh, I think a Josh name, MSG Networks, M M Entertainment. Um, so there are many stocks that you guys talk about every day that he likes. A lot of financials uh, are in his book. Hey, too. Judge, I, I, think, I think one thing worth pointing out I had this conversation with Terranova on the phone the other night where the whole day on CNBC, everyone was talking about how low quality stocks are leading. And Joe is just like, Josh, just thinking out loud, can you think of any investor who's ever succeeded by building a portfolio of deliberately low quality stocks and having that be a long term strategy? And obviously the answer is no, that of course does not work. In fact, the opposite works, high quality over the long term. So I think what this comes down to is you have a lot of quants out there producing interesting research, and they're trying to back into a style. So they're saying, oh, it's low quality now. It's deep value. It's cyclical. None of that is really what's driving investor decisions. What's actually driving investor decisions is, um, is industry. So people are saying, I see oil prices going, I want to own oil. They're not buying oil stocks because they're value stocks. They just happen to be cheap. Um, relative to what next year's earnings expectations are because of how bad last year was. So when we talk about MSG, it's not a buy because it's a value stock. It's a buy because the facility was shut down last yeah. year. All of the facilities were shut down <laughs> and, last year. And, I and this year with they John, won't be. And I joked with John that the Knicks actually know how to play basketball again, too. It may make the playoffs, right? You get that more helps, revenue coming in the look building. At Expedia, look at Expedia right now. This is a... Here's why Expedia hey, is working. Hey, Josh, hold, and, hold your and thought. It broke hold your out. thought just one second. I, I apologize. Okay. I got to go to uh, Steve Leisman, who has some breaking news uh, regarding the Fed. And we're watching the 10 year as we hear Steve. Hey, Scott. Yeah, uh, Powell, let me just turn the sound off here at a, a Wall Street Journal conference. Uh, sounding very, very dovish, Scott. I want to give you some of the headlines that we have here. Uh, he says it's going to take some time to achieve substantial further progress. You remember, that's the language that they've used to signal when they might be reducing uh, quantitative easing. But he's not in a hurry to do that. The speed of the rate rise, he said, was, quote, notable. He said it caught my attention, but didn't seem like a guy who was going to do anything about it real quickly. Inflation, he says, is set to increase, but he says that's likely to be temporary. There'll be reopening effects, some uh, 
bottlenecks. But he thinks the economy and people who are uh, looking at that will look through that and see it as temporary. He also notes the Fed has high standards for maximum employment. It goes on to say that uh, uh, unlikely to hit maximum employment this year. Economic outlook has become more positive at the margin. Here's a direct quote. If we see inflation, we will be patient. And the Fed has a commitment not to raise interest rates just because the labor market is strong. I'll go back and listen again, Scott, but I hope you're getting the tenor there. Uh, He is in no hurry to do almost anything with Fed policy here. He's not all that worried about inflation. Noted the rise in rates. Didn't seem like he was going to do anything about it. I, I got the tenor. Clearly, I'm watching the market react, too. So, you know, it's the old transitory thing, right? You didn't use that word, but that's basically what he thinks, right? Temporary, transitory for any sort of inflationary pressures that arise, Steve, from this, you know, getting back to the rest of our lives. Um, you say he's so dovish, which we believe. Why is the 10-year spiking? You know, I don't know if they were waiting for, uh, for, it to, to, for it to clear. They had a trade they wanted to make. Uh, there's nothing about this that makes me think uh, Powell is going to raise interest rates or reduce QE any sooner than I thought before this. Two quick things on the inflation thing you talked about. The Fed's view of inflation. You have the base effects, in other words, low inflation dropping out of the year-over-year comparison. That's one. And then second, you have a reopening increase in prices. But Powell keeps insisting that an inflationary process takes many years, and he doesn't believe that the anchored inflation expectations, which have characterized the last several decades, are about to change because of the reopening. Yeah. Steve, I appreciate it. Uh, very important headlines from yeah, Steve Leesman. I'll be back for listening us. again. All right. Yeah. Jump in uh, if you hear anything else that we need to know about, uh, as you always do. Uh, let's take a look at the major averages, too. A 10-year rising to 150. You've got the NASDAQ. Uh, same old story. Rates up. NASDAQ starts to bleed. And uh, that's what it's doing right now. You're down by nearly triple digits again on the NASDAQ, down 97, three quarters of 1%. The uh, Dow was green. Dow is now uh, in the red, too, by some 23 points. S&P is a fractional loser. There you go, all the way on the right-hand side of your screen there, approaching 151 uh, now for the yield on the 10-year. So you've had a considerable move within the last hour or so. Uh, and you did see the spike on your screen on the intraday chart of the 10-year note yield, which is something to keep our eye on as we have this conversation, which, by the way, NASDAQ's now down by triple digits. As we said, it was on the cusp of that. Um, it plays into our next guest's view as well. Jonathan Krinsky, he is Baycrest's chief market technician. It's good to see you. Um, I wanted to bring you in earlier because it's not like John Rogers is out there on an island by himself. You think the value move has legs. You said the following, and then I want you to explain it. We thought that the bond move last week was capitulatory in the short term and a relief rally would ensure allowing growth names to bounce. Well, that played out to an extent on Monday. The last two days have totally reversed that trend, and now growth finds itself in a precarious spot. How precarious? Well, yeah, I think uh, at the heart of this whole trade is is the bond move. And if we go back to last week, we saw – one of the most extreme capitulatory moves to the downside in bond prices we've seen in the last two decades. We had TLT trade its second highest uh, amount of notional volume on record, only preceded by when it put in its all-time high uh, almost a year ago in March. And then you had it about 13% below its 200-day moving average. And to put that in context, that's that's about the widest spread below its 200-day it's been in the last two decades of which we have data. So that was the capitulatory move. Bonds should have bounced strongly off of that move, which is what we thought we would get when we came in this week. When something is that oversold and can't bounce and it can't muster a rally, and you know it, it still could, but you know we're, we're out here four days 
four or five days post that that move and and bonds are still moving flat to lower when it can't bounce that tells you that that primary trend is pretty strong the momentum the downside momentum in bond prices is strong um, and so if we think that bond prices move lower and interest rates continue to move flat or higher mm-hmm. it makes it a much more difficult case to be um, to be buying growth relative to value. And I think some of the topics you guys hit on make sense. I, I don't think that you necessarily, if you think value outperforms, if you think value has momentum to the upside, I don't think you have to see growth necessarily move down. We've seen that in the last few days. We're seeing it a little bit more today. Seeing it right um, now. I mean, you're seeing yeah, it in real time, right? We're watching it right. literally so, in, in real time. As, as the move gets higher in rates, the move gets lower in the NASDAQ particularly, but now we're, we're all the way in the red across the board. I'm just going to tell the guys in the back, get Leesman back w- with us if you can, too, because I want him to participate in, in this conversation. I'm trying to figure out what exactly is going on with, with rates and the market and whether hey, Steve Leesman, you're back with us, right? Yeah. How, how much of this do yeah, you I'm think, here. how much of this, if, if anything, is Powell saying I'm not worried about inflation, right? It's temporary. But maybe the market is saying, well, we're not exactly sure if you're going to be able to get a grip on inflation if it starts to rise and maybe gets out of control. What isn't an issue now may become a big issue later and you may not be able to deal with it. I think that's 100 percent right, Scott, in the following way. Uh, Powell doesn't have the risk of higher inflation in his portfolio per se, whereas all the fabulous people around your desk, they do. They have to worry about it. They can make a bet. I'm throwing out numbers, and maybe uh, Josh Brown wants to weigh in on this. Let's say I bet Powell is 80% likely to be right, but there's a 20% chance that he's wrong. Well, I got to look at that portfolio, and I got to have a 20% hedge, or maybe it's a 10% or a 5% hedge in the tips market, or selling bonds in order uh, for to guard and hedge my portfolio against the possibility of inflation. Look, Scott, as you know, over the last decade or so. I've been the one railing as as much as anybody, along with you, by the way, against the inflationistas out there. They have been wrong, the idea that the the Fed policy would create inflation. This time, I still think the Fed's going to be right. But I have to acknowledge that between the reopening, the mask of fiscal stimulus, the Fed's new metrics, by the way, for moving, which is, you know, maximum employment aiming for higher inflation, all of that creates a real risk rather than a made-up risk that we had before that perhaps there could be an outbreak of inflation. I think Powell's right. It's going to take some time, by the way, for real inflation to, to, to set in, for people to change their moods. But yeah, you're on a portfolio. you got to step back and say, there's a risk this happens. Maybe the Fed gets it right. Maybe there's an 80%, 85% chance. But i got to deal with the reality of that risk. I'm just thinking it's an extraordinary intraday move, um, intra-half-hour move, in uh, the yield of the 10-year um, when you come on, who knows this stuff yeah. better than everybody and declares that he's as dovish as he's ever been, I, and yet you're seeing a move I'll like say this. one thing. Yeah. Scott, when you asked me that question, I had an answer, obviously, when I got off air, you know, like, uh, that, like that great Seinfeld episode where he had the answer when he left the meeting. Here's, here, I'll throw something out of you. Powell was asked specifically uh, after I, I, I came on about this issue of performing operations in order to lower uh, the long-end yield and, and coming in, selling bills, essentially buying bonds. He sort of, you know, dismissed that idea. 
I'm wondering if maybe some of the trade right now, at least in the bond market, gives an all clear say, hey, the Fed's not going to come in and do this. So therefore, there's a little bit more risk on the long end because the Fed is not in a place right now where it feels it has to come in and, um, uh, and, and, and do any work to bring down long end yields. That creates a little more risk on the upside there. And the market, frankly, has to find its range. And stock investors have to find their uh, allocations relative to a potentially higher bond yield. Yeah. So you referenced Josh specifically. So I'll let Josh, you know, get in. And then I know John Najarian has a question for you, too. But Josh Brown, it's a really a, um, a stunner of a move in a very short period of time on seemingly not much news at all. Yeah, I agree that it's a big move, but I would also just point out that everything seems to be happening faster in our financial markets, which makes sense because the pace of our lives have sped up. So corrections and even bear markets now have been compressed into the span of a month or two. Um, and we, we process news that comes out really quickly and we trade at a faster rate. So I do understand that the rise in the rate on the 10-year can be jarring when it's this quick. But I would just also point out, um, everyone knows that the Fed has been very involved in trying to boost inflation. So if they say that's what they want to do and then it happens, I'm not exactly sure where, where the negative is. If that's their, their stated policy intent is to have inflation be higher in the future than it is today, which it is, and then they magically are able to bring it about, mm -hmm. like, did, what was the problem there? Uh, the, the rate on the 10-year before the pandemic, let's just all remember, was 2%. And in the fall of 2018, it was as high as 3%. So 1.5% really just gets us back up to the lower end of the 10-year-long the range of where we saw the 10-year. So it's not unprecedented. It's not extraordinary. It's really the speed that I think people are reacting to. Um, but I think given where economic growth is, given the reopening of the economy, most people will get accustomed to one, a one and a half percent 10 year. Uh, and again, the Fed doesn't control that. Right. The Fed controls overnight rates, which I don't think are moving. The other thing, Steve, as I as I think of this, it's, you know, Josh is right. And the commentary from the Fed of late, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe it was Evans and, and others, and maybe Powell himself, have made it clear they're willing to let inflation run um, a little bit hot. Part of me wonders if this is the market yeah. saying, OK, tough guy. OK, you want to let inflation run a little hot? Let's see what you're really able to handle, how hot you're how hot you're really willing to let it go. You know, Scott, um, I, I'm a little tempted to think of a, a metaphor. We ever play craps, you get dice, you throw them on the table. Some of them come up seven, some of them come elevens, and you pick the two ones. A little bit more inflation in the market creates that dispersion in the sense that there are going to be some companies invested by the august members of this panel that are going to benefit from higher inflation. They're going to be able to raise prices, pass that along. It's going to help their margin. Some companies are going to be hurt by inflation. Uh, and, and you guys are going to have to make choices. Higher inflation, if it really happens, changes some of the calculus that's out there. With due respect to what Josh said, by the way, which is that overall, we're talking about a modest amount, there are some companies that are going to be affected by higher interest rates, some companies not affected. So I think all of that changes the calculus. Again, you got to take a step back and do new evaluations with some of the holdings that you had. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming back on, uh, Steve.
a really a, sure. a, a move to, to behold in the 10-year note yield. You could see the spike very clearly on your screen, a big sell-off in the NASDAQ almost instantaneously, which is now down 172 points. That's one and a third percent. Uh, John Najarian, my apologies. I got to bounce. Let me take a quick break. Get unusual ready. I promise I'll give you enough time to do that. Jonathan Krinsky, thank you for jumping on. Sorry I had to cut you a little short. Make it up to you next time. Up next, the meme stock mania shining the spotlight on social media sentiment. Now there's a new ETF that tracks it all. It's called Buzz. But is social media popularity a good way to pick stocks? The man behind the index will tell us next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Morgan Brennan, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Capitol Hill police have asked the National Guard to continue providing security at the Capitol for another two months. The request underscores concerns about ongoing threats, including a possible plot by a militia group to storm the building today. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey is extending her state's mask mandate until April 9th, but indicating that it will end at that time. The move comes just days after Texas and Mississippi ended their mask requirements. In Myanmar, thousands are back on the streets today, demonstrating against the country's military coup. They are undaunted by security forces shooting dead at least 38 people on Wednesday. Some protesters built barricades to slow police actions against them. And SpaceX successfully launched another Falcon 9 rocket this morning. It carried 60 Starlink satellites, uh, internet satellites, excuse me, into orbit. The 20th load of Starlink satellites carried aboard a Falcon 9 and a Falcon 9 rocket specifically that has now gone to space and relanded that booster eight times, Scott. And of course, I'd just also note, it just speaks to how busy SpaceX has been these days because the company also did a test of its latest Starship prototype just hours before that launch yesterday, one in which that specific uh, rocket prototype landed but did a couple minutes later on the launch pad explode into a fireball. Yeah, yeah, those were um, amazing pictures to see. Yeah. Morgan, thank you. Morgan Brennan with the latest for us there. Well, measuring the buzz around stocks mentioned in social media is all the rage these days. As you know, now there is, of course, an ETF for that. 
The Buzz Exchange Traded Fund began trading today. Bob Pisani joins us with the man behind that index. Bob, take it away. And Jamie Wise is here, the man behind Buzz Holdings. Jamie, congratulations. You got the ETF done. You tracked 75 stocks with the most bullish social media sentiment. Everybody's wondering, is this really a viable new way of investing? Tracking social media posts, do you think that it is a viable way of investing? Is that what we should be doing now instead of following, you know, price momentum or fundamentals, for example? Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, we've been doing exactly this approach for over five years now within the Buzz Index. So this is not a new approach from our perspective, at least in terms of listening to the broad investor commentary about, you know, which stocks they are positive towards and, um, you know, the broad and diverse names and securities that they're holding in their portfolio. So it's nothing new for us. What has changed, though, is the volume of conversation. And it's increased materially since we first launched the Buzz Index back in 2015. Today, we're probably processing at least eight times the amount of data through our natural language processing models each month when we're listening to the conversation about which stocks are most positive. Can you, this has all been a little bit complicated by the fact that you brought Dave Portnoy in as a a co-owner of Buzz Holdings. Can you tell us what percentage of your company he owns, number one? And number two, can you respond to criticism about his presence in this? The strange thing about this is you have the owner, the co-owner of an index company, hyping an index in which he is partly the subject of the index. It's sort of like this echo chamber or hall of mirrors that we were in. It's caused a little bit of confusion. Can you respond to that criticism? Sure. Dave is part of the ownership group at Buzz Holdings. And, um, you know, really, it's not about Dave specifically. I think he's viewed um, certainly as a champion of the individual investor. He serves as a a voice or even a lightning rod for many um, in terms of, you know, his activity on social media, what he talks about. But this index has never been, and it's not about Dave's stock picks, not at all. The index represents the collective conviction of millions of people who are, you know, engaging in online platforms and talking about stocks and represents their aggregate sentiment. Um, you know, specifically to Dave, he sparks a conversation, which is great. Um, you know, if he decides that he wants to talk about a certain stock on a given day, that sparks a much broader conversation. And it could be Dave or really any other person of, quote, influence. But those broader conversations are really where we can find true insight into the collective sentiment of the community. All right. Josh Brown has a question. Josh? Yeah. Hi, Jamie. Congrats on the big opening day. Looks like a ton of uh, trading volume and a lot of interest in this. Uh, Arguably, if this works this time, Dave Portnoy should probably end up owning a majority stake in buzz indexes because you tried this before without him launching in 2016 with Sprott, another asset management firm. And it's not that your index didn't work, but nobody bought the ETF. So it seems like you're getting a much, much bigger response from it this time. And I think the Portnoy effect is probably a big reason for that. So I guess my question is, would you agree with that characterization that this is really fame driven, uh, number one? And then number two, how does the algorithm distinguish between people speaking positively about a brand or a company versus people speaking positively about a stock, right? Because if Twitter is the number one holding, I'm going to guess most of the sentiment is not necessarily people tweeting about Twitter, the stock, but people just tweeting about things that are happening on Twitter. Or is your AI good enough to tease those two things apart? 
Yeah, no, good questions all around. Um, you know what, I can speak to your first question um, in, in regards to, you know, why is it different this time? You know, I think we were a little bit early in, in championing the voice of the individual investor, you know, five, five years ago when we started the index. Um, and I think today, you know, even before Buzz launched or was known to the world in its current form, there's a lot more conversation around what, what people are talking about on these online communities and just how, how good and intelligent those insights can be. Um, with respect to, you know, whether we think about the sentiment relating to a stock from a brand or investment perspective, that's a great question and one that we should clarify. All of the insights that we're looking to are individuals talking about stocks from an investment perspective. So if someone has a good or bad experience at a Disney theme park and decides to tweet about that, that won't be included in our algorithms. We are only caring about people talking about Disney, for example, from an investment perspective. Um, and there's lots of platforms that are really investment focused where those individuals gather. And those are the ones that we're focused on when we're listening to that broad community conversation. Jamie, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck on the ETF. Stay in touch, all right? You bet. Thanks for having me. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff. Thank you for that interview, Bob Pisani. Up next, John Najarian has his unusual activity in just two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Dr. J, unusual activity. Got a couple names for us. What are they? Indeed, Scott. Uh, the first one is Marathon, M-R-O, Scott. Uh, here they're buying about 6,000 calls at the June 12 strike. I bought those calls. Uh, this is uh, a play that I'll probably be in two months, Scott. Second one, also energy. I added to ExxonMobil, X-O-M. Stock was roughly 58 and change. They're buying the 60 calls that expire March 26. This is not the two-week out calls. These are about three weeks out. I'll be in those probably for two weeks, Scott. Like the action in the energy stocks. Yep. All right. I appreciate that, Doc. Thank you very much. Uh, speaking of Thank oil, you. we'll find out next how the futures traders are playing that big move higher. Look at that. WTI is up 5%. Big time rip in the oil patch today. We'll do that next. Let's do the futures outlook now. Crude oil is surging higher today as major producers meet to discuss potential supply cuts. Scott Nation's joining us now with the trade there. 65 bucks, no joke. Uh, up 5% on the day, and that's largely because OPEC Plus has decided on a really minuscule increase in production, 150,000 barrels. And, Scott, we were expecting a million barrels and a million and a half barrels was, was a possibility. So we see crude oil up 5% on the day. But the interesting thing is the Saudis are going to get to increase production on their own starting in May. Gradually, they're going to increase production by a million barrels a day on their own. And so I think this move is overdone. If I wanted to, to trade it, 
Uh, I would want to see a pullback and then get short. I would use a stop in. I would sell the April contract at $63 even. Once I'm in, my target would be $61.50. My stop, we're always going to trade these with a stop. My stop, once I'm in, would be $63.50. And at those levels, we're risking $500 to make $1,500. All right. We'll see what happens with that trade. Scott Nations, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. We'll take another break. We'll come back with final trades. All right. Final trades in a minute. But look at that. That's a spike in the yield of the 10-year. Fed Chair Powell was making comments Steve Leisman described as dovish. He talked about inflation being temporary, transitory, whatever word you want to use to describe that. He said the recent move in speed in rates caught his eye, was noteworthy. And then this happened. Take a look at the major averages, because as that went up, the yield of the 10-year, the major averages went down. Now, the Dow's at the lows of the day. It's down 326 points. The Nasdaq was the initial big loser. Nasdaq down 271 points. That's more than 2%. Same story there. Yields up. Tech stocks go down. Now all stocks are going down. The S&P 500 is down by near 50 points. So that is the market reaction. Let's do final trades before we get out of here. Tiffany, why don't you start us off today? Marriott. Leisure travel is returning, and so is Marriott. Okay. Farmer Jim? Yeah, Kinder Morgan. If you feel you've missed the energy rally, Kinder Morgan still has a lot of room to run. Okay, and a Pete Nigerian stock, speaking of. John Nigerian, what do you got? Analog devices, Scott, bought it during the show, ADI. Okay, the TRB, Josh Brown. Festival shows by midsummer at 75 to 100% capacity, according to Live Nation CEO. You want to be in this stock. Yeah, been a big stock pick of yours. Thank you for that. Let's show the averages again. I'm looking at the S&P, but down by about 47. Stock's pretty much at the lows of the day. I know the exchange is going to be all over that. And that show begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.